The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome to Scorebox Europe on what is an historic couple of days for Brexit. You're watching a program where we are live from the city of Westminster, we are live from Brussels, and we are live from Belfast. And these are your headlines. Boris takes the battle home. UK Prime Minister urging the lawmakers to vote in favour of his Brexit deal, as he has one day to get the agreement over the line. Now is the moment for us as a country to come together. Now is the moment for our parliamentarians to come together and get this thing done. EU officials vow to meet the October 31st deadline if UK lawmakers pass the deal as the European Council President Donald Tusk talks up the agreement. The reality is that today we have a deal which allows us to avoid chaos and an atmosphere of conflict between the EU27 and the United Kingdom. China's third quarter GDP grows at its slowest pace in almost 30 years as weak factory production and an ongoing trade war weigh on the world's second largest economy. French automaker Renault cuts its full-year revenue and profit guidance citing weak sales outside of Europe as car makers struggle with a broad downturn. So, of course, events dominated certainly in the last 24 hours and certainly over the next 24 hours by events here in Westminster. Of course, Boris Johnson has done something that many people thought was impossible, uh, and that is get the EU to revisit the withdrawal agreement between the British government and indeed the EU that the EU had previously said would not be changed at all. But he has had to make some big compromises uh, in order to get a new deal on the table, a new deal which includes a whole new set of rules uh, for Northern Ireland, which, of course, potentially uh, will create a banana skin for Mr Johnson, UK Prime Minister, when he tries to get affirmation of the New Deal from the British Parliament in a historic sitting, which will carry out in the next 24 hours. It's only four times since 1939 uh, that... British Parliament has sat on a Saturday. The last time was to debate the Falklands crisis back in 1982. But what awaits the Prime Minister? Well, lawmakers over the next 24 hours will be feverishly looking through the detail on the new plan, working out whether they can support it or not. The deal includes the fact that the whole of the UK will leave the EU Customs Union, but there will be a new set of rules uh, for the entity of Northern Ireland, for the territory of Northern Ireland, a legal customs border uh, between Northern Ireland and Ireland, but will be down potentially the Irish Sea rather than on the border. And that is a key point for the DUP, which of course has issues over uh, the customs treatment. It has treat uh, issues over its consent and whether it rather than a majority instalment the Northern Ireland Assembly can vote for it. And of course, the treatment of VAT as well has been put up as a further objection from the DUP. But of course, we heard from the British Prime Minister who hot-footed it to Brussels yesterday uh, about why he sees this as a great new move forward for the relationship between Britain and the EU. Let's listen in to the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. I think this is a very good deal for every part of the uh, UK and uh, particularly for 
uh, for Northern Ireland. And I would point out that, uh, as I say just now, uh, from the beginning, Northern Ireland will be able to uh, join with the rest of the UK in doing free trade deals around the world uh, and, uh, and all the other benefits that flow from membership of the, uh, the UK uh, market. And of course, uh, without having a, uh, a, uh, any checks, any infrastructure of any kind uh, at the border in Northern Ireland. And I think in that respect, it is a, a great success. That was Boris Johnson there talking about why he believes this was a good deal for Great Britain and the EU going forward, of course. And one of the other key points was there was no uh, pretense that the British would be in a customs union uh, with the European Union going forward. It would be pretty much down to a free trade agreement, which, of course, is due to be negotiated over the next couple of years. Hearing from the Commission president, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, as well, he actually made some very interesting comments about the need to crack on and possibly the lack of need for any further delay and any further extension. I had him on the phone this morning uh, several times in order to, to uh, make uh, the deal. And he and myself, we don't think that it's possible to give another prorogation. So, uh, a lot of, as I say, bonhomie going on in Brussels, but back here in Westminster, very interesting to look at the numbers game and everybody, everybody has been working out whether Boris Johnson has the numbers to go forward. Just very crudely saying it to you, our viewers, one more time, there are 650 MPs in the British Parliament here in Westminster. Now, Sinn Féin doesn't take up its seven seats uh, and the Speaker, the Deputy Speaker and their tellers account for another four. So, the magic number comes down to 600. 39 divided by two uh, and adding pretty much a half gets you to the air around about 320 seats needed if there are no abstentions and that's a very key point as well if there are no abstentions to get through a full parliament the British Prime Minister would need circa 320 votes now at the moment he has in total around about 287 Conservative MPs uh, and plus the independent Conservatives who no longer have the whip and included in that 287 figure are the so-called ERG Spartans the 28 who may or may not take their lead from the DUP. Although it seems, certainly in the last 24 hours, that the mood music from the likes of Mr Bridgden, the likes of Bill Cash, uh, the likes uh, of, of other hard Brexiteers, that they would be backing potentially the Prime Minister as well. So then potentially the Prime Minister needs to rely on Labour rebels, uh, on independents, possibly one in a Lib Democrat rebel as well to get himself near to the figure that he needs to get. And at the moment, it looks a very tough ask without the DUP. Karen, let me hand it back to you. Steve, thank you very much. Yes, after three failed votes previously, question marks whether it will be four failed votes or whether, in fact, it uh, will be a success this time around. So various scenarios we're still contending with this morning. Let's get out to Willem also standing by for us in Brussels and Juliana in Belfast. Willem, I want to kick it over to you first because we saw some mixed messages from the European side yesterday about whether there will be any further delay or extension to Brexit. Also, depending on this weekend vote by Parliament here in the UK, what are you hearing? What is the ability to deliver a Brexit if UK parliamentarians support the Brexit deal as it stands? And if they don't, what's the room for further negotiation or an extension? So let's split that into two parts there, Karen. You know, the idea that the European side could get everything done 
by October 31st. We spoke to a member of the European Parliament yesterday. She said, so long as we get something today, we think we will have time because so much of this agreement is what we saw last year under Theresa May. There's maybe a couple of dozen pages that will be different that we'll need to scrutinise. We would like to scrutinise those, but there's no reason that we wouldn't be able to do that before the 31st. Then you've also got, of course, the uh, European Parliament around the entire continent. Leaders saying they see no reason why their parliaments won't be able to endorse this deal as well. And then the question that remains, and that's the one you alluded to, is whether they would grant an extension. And yesterday, the Commission president, the man that has been running the executive branch of the EU for the last few years, Jean-Claude Juncker, he's on his way out on October 31st. And he said he didn't see any chance there'd be an elongation, a prolongation. But of course, that's not in his gift, because the way Article 50 of the European Treaty works is that all member states would have to approve it. It means that a letter would go from the Prime Minister, if he's mandated to send one by the British Parliament as of Saturday, would come to the Council President, that's Donald Tusk, who would then consult with these other leaders and then potentially offer an extension, although on what terms, of course, we don't know. Here was Donald Tusk's reaction to the fact that a deal, though, had been found. The reality is that today we have a deal which allows us to avoid chaos and an atmosphere of conflict between the EU27 and the United Kingdom. Therefore, the European Council invited the Commission, the European Parliament and the Council to ensure that this agreement can enter into force on the 1st of November 2019. And of course, if it does enter force on November 1st, 2019, you know what else might happen then, Karen? The talks over the trade agreement between the UK and the EU would finally be able to begin during that transition period that right now ends at the end of 2020. And of course, there'll be a lot more struggles and battles and fights and bruising encounters over the terms of trade down the road. Wilhelm, thank you very much for spelling out all the complexities as we stand. Uh, meantime, Northern Ireland's DUP has opposed the Brexit deal. In a statement, the party said the proposals are not, quote, beneficial to the economic well-being of Northern Ireland and they undermine the integrity of the union. Their support was previously seen as crucial in getting a Brexit deal through Parliament. Let's get out to Juliana for more. She's in Belfast today. Juliana, the DUP continue to hold discussions with the government, so the dialogue is ongoing. But it's hard to see anything concrete changing in the text of the agreement. So what about a separate piece of paper, a cheque that could be written to Northern Ireland that might paper over some of the differences? Is that possible at this point? Well, Karen, we will see today if any tweaks can be made at the summit that would appease the DUP. But at this point, they are steadfast. They do not support this new proposal. And as you outlined there, the crux of this uh, comes down to that they don't think this new deal will s benefit the economic uh, situation, the economic well-being in Northern Ireland, and it will undermine the integrity of the union. Take a listen to what the leader of the DUP, Arlene Foster, had to say about why they can't support this deal. We will continue to work uh, with the government, but as regards the deal which uh, the Prime Minister is bringing back from Brussels today, we believe it is not in the interests of Northern Ireland, either economically, and I've explained all of that around a border essentially for not just uh, regulations, but for goods. We have different VAT rules, and we have no effective consent over any of those rules. So uh, all of that taken in the round means that we cannot support this deal. 
So they don't like what this deal may mean for consumers in Northern Ireland. It could lead to higher costs and less choice. They don't like it, what it means for VAT, the fact that Northern Ireland would be bound to different arrangements than the rest of the UK. And then most importantly, they don't like the, the format of consent. And this is the last point that Arlene Foster made there. So let me just explain uh, what the consent procedure will be under the new plan. So in this new proposal, the Northern Ireland Assembly at Stormont, which is this building just behind me, which has been suspended since 2017, remember, would have the opportunity to vote on the customs and regulatory arrangements four years after the end of the post-Brexit transition period, and then on an ongoing basis after that. But the key here is that the vote would be based on a simple majority. And this is what the DUP doesn't like, because remember, they don't have a numerical majority anymore. So their fear is that the they could potentially be outvoted by other pro-EU parties. That's the real sticking point. And the key here is that the DP does not uh, support this deal. Let's get back to Steve, though, in Westminster with the latest. Steve? Yeah, thank you very much indeed for that. Well, we're just hearing Juliana talking about the Belfast angle, why the DUP feels it cannot back uh, Boris Johnson's deal in its current form. Let's get a, a view on the pure economics. What I want to do in the next couple of minutes is try and take out the politics and look at the pure economics of what has been agreed between Mr Johnson, UK government, uh, and indeed the EU. So we've got Callum Pickering, who is senior economist uh, over at Berenberg, to just discuss that with us as well. So if we can go into this parallel universe where economists are right and politicians don't matter, Callum, as well, uh, as my great friend Paul Donovan at UBS tries to say all the time. In terms of the economics of this deal, what do you think? Very open question. Well, it depends if you're looking at the short run or the long run. In the short run, I think the fact that we have some clarity and probably going to avoid the hard Brexit means we have better economic growth. We get lower uncertainty, stronger business confidence. That is, of course, if Parliament passes the deal tomorrow. So for two years, expect the economy to do well. In the long run, this deal foresees a free trade agreement between the UK and its biggest market. It's far less deep and integrated than being inside the single market. This will lower UK potential growth. Just to give you some numbers, inside the EU, the UK grows at around 2.1% at a stable level. In this deal, probably 1.7 is potential growth. So we're probably shaving 0.4 off there. How do you know? And this is what the Brexiteers would be asking now. So how do you know that actually UK growth, with all of the trade deals it's going to be able to strike globally, without the constraint of EU rules, without the constraint of uh, EU regulations, how do you actually know that we're going to go to 1.7 from 2.1? You can't possibly say, can you? Well, it's a good question. Now, what we are modelling is all else being equal. That is, nothing changes UK domestic policy, the UK's relationship with non-EU countries. Right. You just change... And yours the is the worst case scenario in many ways. I, it's as we are, but with a free trade agreement with the EU, yeah? If the UK were to pursue better domestic economic policies and have good trade deals with non-EU countries, trade uh, growth could be better. The big key for us is actually immigration. It's not trade or investment. The UK will still do well with the EU trading and investing, even in this FTA. But if the UK sets policies which reduce inward immigration by two-thirds, which is what Theresa May's policy would have done, mm -hmm. that takes a lot of economic growth. Inward immigration is probably added about a sixth to all economic growth since the 1990s. So a lot depends on the deal, but a lot depends on what Mr. Johnson and his colleagues do with immigration over and the next few years. At Berenberg, you done your work on points-based system because we heard it a lot from the Home Secretary. We heard it a lot from Priti Patel telling us about how a points-based system will bring the best talent to the United Kingdom. Do you have your concerns about that, do you? Well, I don't see 
an economic problem with the system that the UK has with the EU. Generally speaking, EU immigrants into the UK are better educated and the rate of economic participation is actually a little higher. So for the most part, the UK is bringing in better talent than the average UK worker anyway. Perhaps you can improve this a little with a point system, but if I don't see a market failure as an economist, I wouldn't recommend a policy solution. And of course, the other part of this is the, the government we know quite clearly wants a general election. And we've quite clearly seen the manifesto on two occasions I've seen it. One when I was here early in the week for the Queen's speech and most latterly when I was up in Manchester listening to minister after minister, secretary of state after secretary of state saying this is what we're going to do after a general election. There's a lot of money being pumped into the, the economy and into productivity as well. So surely that would be a bonus. It's very likely that if Boris Johnson gets this deal through on Saturday, he would win then a general election and go for a fiscal stimulus. In our view, we probably can get growth above 2% for a while mm. in 2020 if we get a deal and then a fiscal stimulus. But fiscal policy mainly, even when it's on the investment side, boosts cyclical demand rather than long-term sure. supply-side growth. So you get a situation where the economy does well, we throw some money at the economy, but then we just return to the potential growth rate, which is a function of our relationship with the rest now, of the world. Now, I specifically asked you questions about if the government gets a deal. And I've done that on purpose because I think actually there is so much conjecture about what could happen if we don't get a deal. I almost feel that there's too many routes to go down. So let me stick with this vein, if you don't mind as well. And what happens to the EU after Britain gets a deal, if Britain gets a deal, after October? October 31st as well, because already we're seeing jockeying from the Germans about their net contribution to the EU as well. Will they need extra stimulus in Europe to offset the fact that you don't have the British contribution? Well, of course, you're going to have to make up the money somehow. The 27 have a very difficult conversation to make. In the short run, expect actually the EU to benefit a little bit. The UK is a big trading partner for all the major economies in the EU. So better economic growth in the UK is a plus for the EU. Just to kind of do some rough numbers, the yeah. EU earns about 3% of its GDP exporting to the UK. UK earns about 12% of its GDP sure. exporting to the EU. So proportionally, we're about four times more exposed. So the benefit in the near term will be bigger for us than the EU. Yeah. In the long run, I wouldn't expect much change to EU potential growth. Okay, and just one more. I've got to move on, but I'm fascinated by everything you're saying this morning. So what about the UK financial markets? We keep hearing we're too dominated by the city of London. I spent my entire career in the city of London, so I do understand what people are talking about as well. But will e the EU, if it's not careful, if it doesn't get the right kind of free trade deal going forward, uh, cut itself off to access or certainly not have the same level of access to UK financial markets, UK money making, and despite the protestations of Brussels, Dublin, Berlin and Paris to want to be the next great financial centre of Europe as well, it is still at the moment London. Is there a danger there in terms of capital raising, in terms of the clearing process for Europe? I, well, there's, it would be bad if the EU locked itself out of the biggest capital market in the world on its doorstep. That would be a bad idea. I don't see any major risks to the City of London from Brexit, so long as we avoid a Jeremy Corbyn government. Being inside the EU is not the reason that the City of London is the European hub of finance. That's a lot due to UK domestic regulations. I would say small gains for Europe, small losses for the relatively big London as a result of the UK leaving. And the there you went. You went there on the old JC question as well because a lot of people have a lot of questions in the city and certainly in business about Jeremy Corbyn. But we'll have to do that on another day. Callum, really nice to see you. Thank, Thank you for much. joining us as well uh, here down at Westminster. Callum Pickering, the senior economist at Berenberg. Karen, I have so many questions. Most of them cannot be answered, but a lot of them will be answered in the next 36 hours. Very exciting it here is. in Westminster. Thank you very much for outlining all the details this morning, Steve. And we do have plenty more to talk about.
about during the show. I want to uh, just uh, flash up the boards on Palm this morning because this has been how many investors have been expressing some of their Brexit optimism or concerns. You can see this morning just drifting off some of the highs that we had where we were close to 129, 128.50 this morning off about a third of a percent. Some of that opposition uh, from the DUP reflected in the trade. But we have had the biggest rising streak since October 1985 uh, in the trade, which has taken us around to five-month highs. Coming up on the show, the slowest growth rate in 30 years. We head out to Beijing to find out more about what's putting China's economy under pressure. I'm sure you can guess. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Let's look at the impact on U.S. markets uh, from some of the Brexit news uh, in the green, as you'd expect. But coming off some of the highs that we saw in session to close, still in the green, but uh, only modest gains for the likes of the Nasdaq, S&P, and even less on the likes of the Dow. But earnings season in the mix, trade concerns, uh, the conversation still taking place between the U.S. and China dominating the narrative and some weak data crossing in session as well for the U.S. market to contend with. Housing starts, industrial production, mid-Atlantic factory output, all short of expectations. The Asian markets today, uh, this is the trade uh, for the Friday session. Slightly risk off for Australia, for China, and you've also got uh, the Japanese stock market only cautiously creeping into the green, but some weak numbers on Chinese GDP, which we'll delve into in a, in a moment, but that's impacting some confidence on the mainland market. So the opening calls, uh, the trade around the UK, interesting, yesterday we saw the FTSE on the back of all of the Brexit developments gaining just 0.2 of a percent, breaking a three-day losing streak, but not much in the way of upside as uh, that strengthened sterling, really denting some of the fortunes of the UK stock market elsewhere. A slightly weaker trade on the continent, uh, worth noting, particularly for the French market uh, sliding in session. You can see this morning on the back foot is how we are standing. Meantime, China's third quarter GDP grew at its lowest pace in almost 30 years. The world's second largest economy posted 6% growth, missing expectations due to weak factory production and an ongoing trade war with the United States. Let's get out to Eunice Memorial out of Beijing. Eunice, uh, still significant uncertainty around phase one of those trade negotiations with the United States. But if we just look at the underlying, how weak is the situation there on the ground in China and what measures do the Chinese authorities still have at their disposal? Well, the consensus seems to be that policymakers here are going to have to introduce new measures to try to stimulate the economy and do it very soon. So we've seen in the past that they use a combination of fiscal stimulus as well as as uh, um, policy easing, uh, monetary easing. And a lot of analysts think that we're going to continue to see a combination, although um, most people think that the policymakers here really don't have as much leeway to move aggressively um, if things were to slip even further uh, because of the fact that there has been so much 
debt uh, racked up in the economy. Um, even so, uh, most people do expect the um, authorities to continue on that path to try to manage and stabilize the growth. And some of the comments that we heard of the National Statistics Bureau seem to um, um, you know, back that, that uh, theory. So the Statistics Bureau had said that the economy here is bracing for big downward pressure, faces complex, serious situations, and that the economy has been hit and continues to see a rise in external uncertainties. Uh, the Bureau says that the Chinese uh, will continue to um, look at special local government bonds and probably front load those that were earmarked for 2020 to this year among um, taking other types of measures to stabilize the growth in the fourth quarter as well as beyond. Uh, now, uh, the Statistics Bureau said that they also are expecting that global the global economy will continue to weaken even further. And um, the, the, the one of the, the big uncertainties out there, as Karen had mentioned, is the um, the trade deal. What actually happens between the U.S. and China? Do they actually negotiate something that's going to be able to lift the uncertainty? The Commerce Ministry had uh, said yesterday that they believe that um, if there is a phase one trade deal um, conducted in or at least closed in, in uh, mid-November, that that would help to restore market confidence and lift uncertainty as well in the markets. But um, but the Chinese have also made it clear that they aren't going to just agree to any sort of deal. Uh, the ministry had reiterated uh, China's position that it wants all of the additional tariffs lifted. And even though the economy is weak, uh, most trade experts that we spoke, speak to uh, believe that uh, China is still going to push to get those tariffs lifted. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.